Do, do you like the feeling of power you have as a newspaper proprietor of being able to sort of formulate policies for a large number of newspapers in every state of Australia? Well, there's only one honest answer to that, of course, and that's yes. Of course one enjoys the feeling of power. The newspaper can create great controversies, stir up uh, arguments within the community, discussion, uh, can throw light on injustices, just as it can do the opposite. It can hide things uh, and be a great power for evil. It's not a perfect system, obviously, but can you think of a better one? Hello and welcome to episode nine of Murdocracy, a podcast that keeps an eye on the news and influence of News Corp, the most influential media company in the Western world. I'm Cam Wilson. And I'm Sammy Shaw. Sammy, have you had any of your text leaked to the media this week? Not this week, but I always feel like it's an in- inevitable thing. Um, just given the fact that most of my friends are journalists anyway, it just <laughs> you're always paranoid about like, I'm going to say something and then one day this will be screenshot in an article and I'll be cancelled fairly, completely rightfully so as well, <laughs> by the way. Yes. Well, that's probably a good sign that no one's at least publicly calling you out for lying or anything. <laughs> I uh I'm actually I'm 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 terrible with with sometimes tweeting pictures of my friends text to me. I don't do it with their names and stuff in it so I do protect mm-hmm, them but mm-hmm. you know if you're communicating with me at any point you just have to accept that you might become content for me and and that's just part of our relationship. <laughs> Is that a caveat that like you tell people up front though or do they realize that inadvertently later? Ah, uh, well, you know, you kind of see how I operate mm-hmm. and you're like, well, you know, I might end up on his Twitter feed somehow and I just yeah. have to accept that. And look, I, I th- you know, I think it's worth it. <laughs> for me, it's a thing. I'm one of those people who, and I know, I know how much of a social faux pas this is, but I don't like texting. So whenever I want to talk mm. to someone, after the second or third te- like round of texts, I'll just call you up. Because you, I, you are yeah, not I a know. millennial. No, I'm a boomer. I have big boomer <laughs> energy when it comes to calling people, and uh, and this thing happens where you know inevitably people will not answer because they'll be like, "Oh, I'm driving right now," or anything. And I'd be like, mm. "I know, but so am I, and it's not safe for me to be texting." So let's just talk. Well, um, that that's good. You know that 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 is our editorial position here. Don't text and drive. Yes, I I, I do sometimes uh, get on the blower to sort things out. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. it is a bit easier, but that very much goes against my uh, my Gen what my Gen Z Gen Y. I'm Gen Y. I'm all mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. goes against my kind of my genes, my breeding, uh, which is just to kind of text and avoid calls at all costs. And if a number that calls me, I don't I don't know what it is. I'll absolutely let it go to voicemail. Nothing well... is more horrifying than an unknown number. Well, I bet Macron wishes he'd just called. <laughs> do you reckon that this, do you reckon that people care about Scott Morrison potentially lying to the French? Like Australians, do you think anyone cares? It's a very strange thing. So like me personally, um, and this might be because I spent like several years in America, particularly during the Bush era, I was there doing the whole Freedom Fries stuff that you know, it was my time in America. I get oh, yeah. annoyed by a certain level of Frenchiness, if I may. And so, <laughs> and so like after a while, I'm like, okay, get over it, Macron. Now you're getting, now it's getting a bit too much, you know? Um, I think the people who dislike Scott Morrison at this point will anyway find a new reason to blame him. And the people who support Scott Morrison or like him over the other parties, over whatever, you know, there are those supporters because he been he won the last election and he seems to be still popular with uh, voters. We'll just see this as more of, look, Macron got called out lying and uh, he's doing what he's got to do to protect Australia's reputation. And yeah, I think it just plays to the audiences the way it would play normally. I think you're right. I think, you know, the, the, where it might hit is this idea of Scott Morrison as a liar, which is apparently, you know, one of mm. his weaknesses, according to polling stuff. But for the most part, I don't think people give a shit about the French. Like, I, I don't think that, yeah. you know, anyone. I mean, I know uh, President Macron is like genetically modified, you know, perfectly created in a lab to make the kind of like professional media class. You know, he really like lights up their brains in a way, mm-hmm. you know, with his kind of like ruling from the center that him rebuking Scott Morrison feels like a big thing. And that's why I think we've seen it in the media. And also, you know, it's drama. We're all messy yeah. bitches who love drama. But ultimately, like, you know, I think people's eyes kind of glaze over a bit when we're talking about all these billions of dollars about subs and all this stuff. I think it might just be a bit overplayed, particularly when you consider that this week was supposed to be about, well, what are we doing about, like, the real threat, the immediate threat 
of climate change. No, there's been none of that coverage at all. Yeah. No one in Australian media cares about COP. What is it? COP twenty six? I can't remember now. <laughs> that's how much. That's how much we care exactly. about. Exactly. <laughs> Sammy. Uh, so we are talking to a special guest this week. Well, mm. all of our guests are, are special. Absolutely. But, uh, but <laughs> some but are more we... special than others. Much exactly. like when you have multiple children, one is more special than the rest. Yes. <laughs> exactly. And this week we have. Uh, former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd speaking to us. Um, He is right now in the middle of a push to get this Murdoch Royal Commission. Uh, it's It will be no surprise to anyone listening that he has been quite critical of News Corp. Uh, I'm looking forward to chatting about him. I think we've got some interesting stuff to get out of him. We will be we'll be pressing him. You know, we'll be making sure he doesn't get off easy. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I'm looking forward to that. Before we get into our News Corp News of the Week, I also want to say that we launched our Patreon last week, uh, and that is for people who want to support us by kicking us a few dollars, pay for hosting, pay for us to do all this stuff like this. I wanted to thank Linda and Samara, who are in our inaugural patrons. Thank you so much for signing up to support us. And if you do want to keep this going, the best way to do it is to just look us up and 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 you know subscribe if you can. Uh, it's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Murdocracy, M-U-R-D-O-C-R-A-C-Y. That's right, Patreon of Murdocracy. Join that, put some money into it, because if you don't, we'll be forced to set up an OnlyFans and really no one, <laughs> no one wants that from either of uh, us. <laughs> I'm sure there's demand out there, Sammy, mm. <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> a very peculiar fetish type site on the web, maybe, but yes. <laughs> For our first story this week, is this how Alan Jones's career ends? Not with a bang, but with a Facebook post. On Thursday, the former commercial radio titan announced that Sky News Australia had offered him a new contract that took him off the channel and instead gave him a reduced role broadcasting one hour a week on their new streaming service, Flash. In effect, a uh, a big demotion. Mm-hmm. Sammy, I think there's so much on this that I, I would actually love to do a deep dive uh, maybe in the following weeks about Alan Jones's career. I know it's been more than News Corp, but I, I think he has you know very News Corp vibes <laughs> even throughout his career. But what do you think that it says that News Corp, who, who spectacularly recruited him to Sky News Australia from 2GB, or, or I mean, he just retired, but you know he did come over there briefly afterwards. What do you think that, I think it was 17 months ago that they did that, now they're ready to just let him go? Well, okay, firstly, I want to point out that the thing that you're glossing over is that you were a big feature in Alan Jones's resignation Aww. announcement. <laughs> it's, a, it's not very often that a podcast host of on, on any podcast I am on ends up being someone Alan Jones quotes extensively as to uh-huh. why he's way more popular <laughs> than News Corp management treated him to be. So let's bring that up for starters. Yeah, so, so that, was, that was an article I wrote for Crikey where I work about, um, it was around the time that the Daily Telegraph got rid of his weekly uh, newsletter. This has kind of happened after he'd gotten a lot of heat and they'd gotten heat for some of his more extreme views on COVID. Um, and, and I kind of wrote that uh, it may be true that he's not resonating with their their listeners, but mm-hmm. he certainly is resonating online uh, with the kind of anti-vaxxer conspiracy types. And he, he does have a really big Facebook page, uh, got about 140,000 followers, very active. I think the thing is um, that, you know, for, for, this, for the Sky News Australia, even though it is digital, even though it's massive on YouTube, the thing that I think still pays the bills really is subscriber numbers and advertisers. Yeah, and, advertisers, uh, exactly. And and I don't know how many people who are spending, you know, 23 hours a day on, on YouTube and in Facebook groups uh, are subscribing for Foxtel. And I don't know how advertisers really felt about him and some of his, you know, more extreme views. Well, I mean, part of that is why it seems, um, you know, some of the, the the narrative I've seen as to why Sky News got rid of him, some of the credit, at least, for that has been taken by the group MW, MFW, which is, you know, Mad Fucking Witches is their official title. And it's basically a group of, of uh, women around Australia who were very offended by when Alan Jones said, you know, you should shove a sock down Jacinda Ardern's throat. And basically, it's like campaigning for advertising revenue to be removed from his broadcasts. And I think, I, I don't know the level of success they had with that, but I think that would have played a part in whatever decision Sky News had to make in the end. But also, you know, one of the things we're seeing a lot on social media is people going, finally, accountability. This is about accountability. This is about someone who says things that they haven't been held accountable for, finally facing accountability. And I don't, I don't know if that's actually the truth, because the fact that, Realistically speaking, he's going to be replaced by Piers Morgan. 
you know, who's just Alan Jones in a slightly more, um, I guess, in a, in a, in a, yeah, yeah, exactly, in a, in a slightly more crumpet suit, you know, like that. But uh, so I don't know if accountability is really what it is. Even Andrew Bolt has gone, you know, has gone to several pains to point out that this isn't wokeism. This is more to do with the fact that they needed to make space and money for P.S. Morgan, who's just a bigger brand and a bigger name. And Alan Jones has had his run and has it had his time. Um, so maybe it just comes out of that. Maybe it, it is about money, but not in the way we're thinking. Maybe it's not about the revenue loss that they were incurring by having him there and more about the revenue gains that they can incur by having someone even bigger there. I have heard from one source that mm. the re- so I mean I wrote an article actually exactly a year ago today, which was um you know I I was kind of one of the first people to point out that Sky News had really quickly created this enormous digital uh, presence that meant that it was reaching far more people on there than it had on terrestrial television mm-hmm. and and since then I think that's been you know everyone's kind of really accepted that and we've seen a whole lot of stuff from there. Um, but one thing I found out recently, and I've, I've only confirmed this with one source, so, uh, you know, take it with a, a bit of a grain of salt, but the reason that Sky News went and suddenly created this digi- digital juggernaut that made it, you know, it's bigger than the ABC, it's bigger than all the other commercial stations on places like YouTube in terms of views, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. was because places like MFW, Mad Fucking Witches and Sleeping Giants had been uh, targeting their advertisers, their traditional advertisers who were going through the Foxtel um, network. And instead they wanted to figure out another revenue stream. So they turned to digital. So in a weird way, I've, I've heard, this is just from one yeah. uh, person, the reason that they ended up creating this huge impact like you know we've seen like sky news like i don't know if you remember that there was this um the the QAnon shaman who was this you know weird looking dude who was in the january 6th insurrection uh, oh yeah in remember, capital. yes he had a big had face painted mm-hmm. this weird outfit you know he had been sharing sky news australia we've seen that sky news has actually become its digital operation parts of it that are promoting the more fringe ideas has actually become a big part of online you know misinformation and fear-mongering that in a perverse way is actually due to the fact that there was pressure on their traditional advertisers here it forced them at least parts of them to go more towards the kind of fringes uh in a weird way actually made them more impactful than i think that they had been in the past that being said my understanding is and this is what my gut feeling would be about the alan jones thing which is that you know, it was only a few weeks ago or a few months ago that they were suspended from YouTube for in part um, clips, including some from Alan Jones that uh, were deemed to be COVID misinformation. Mm-hmm. For them, for News Corp, despite their good deal with Google, which we've discussed a lot and we're you know, very interested in, they still re- rely on the whims of these digital platforms to let them stay on there. And right. I think what they decided was, they, well, they looked at that and they said maybe there's a risk in that. They also probably looked at the fact that, you know, although Alan Jones is kind of, um, his columns have been performing quite well. So his text on, on Facebook and stuff, his videos aren't actually necessarily as big as something like Rita Panahi or Paul Murray, both on YouTube and on Facebook, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. So as a result, they probably said, well, um, we, we see you as a bit of a risk. You're probably quite expensive, you know, like I'm sure Alan Jones commands yes. a, a decent fee to do a, a, a daily or week daily show. That combined with the potential risk, combined with the fact that I think we'd actually get some other people who can probably do what you do and even better at a, re- a reduced pay means that for them, they're, they're betting on saying, I think we can get what you do elsewhere without the potential downsides. Well, one of the things, remember um, last week we were talking about uh, the Australian, the newspaper, launch, looking to launch a younger version of its paper, you know, for younger yep. audiences, which I think was going to be called The Oz. And the idea is that they're now targeting um, just audiences that aren't, as they've described, old white men. And maybe this is part of that agenda as well, which is the overall news scope agenda to see, you know, seeing how popular they are on YouTube, seeing how popular they are on the socials and stuff to go, well, let's just make sure all of our content is just working harder at getting that cohort than just, you know, the kind of uh, aged pensioner who hates uh, brown people because they've never actually met one who normally would listen to Alan Jones. Yeah, and and, and the, the part of the reason the success of Sky News 
on YouTube is because their best content is really global. And I know, and I know Alan Jones has done a little bit about, you know, he loves to give Joe Biden a kick occasionally for being like demented or, or having dementia or something. Mm-hmm. But uh, a lot of his content is Australian, whereas the best performing content is this yes. kind of global cultural stuff. I mean, just to give people a, a, a sense of their scale, Sky News Australia has had their content viewed that is one and a half billion times. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have two two uh, 2.12 million subscribers and they are, they continue to kind of grow really big. Like essentially they really only began their digital, like they only began really doing YouTube since about like halfway through 2019. So in that time, in just two years, they have overtaken the other commercial networks because they've said, let's, let's appeal to a global audience and let's, you know, let's say the stuff that other people aren't necessarily going as far as saying. And it, yes. it's easy for them. Like, you know, like I said, that kind of um, talking about Joe Biden having dementia or something. I think like I looked at it yesterday, five out of their 10 top videos on YouTube by views are about that. That doesn't require any unique reporting. Like it's not like they're mm-hmm. going out there and giving Joe Biden a test. What they're just doing is saying something that they know will go viral because people, it's, it's one of the, you know, common attacks of Joe Biden. And because they're in Australia, you know, no one really cares what, um, you know, Paul Murray is saying about Joe Biden. So they're not getting any any real uh, blowback, but it performs so well. And, and that's what they're betting on. They're saying we can do this uh, elsewhere and we can kind of get that kind of revenue and interest through there. And if you look at it, they're probably saying we've got two real revenues. We've got uh, from our terrestrial television, and that's subscribers, and we've got uh, terrestrial advertisers. Well, Alan Jones is a risk to those advertisers. And then on digital, well, I mean, he's not quite really as performing mm-hmm. as well as these other people. So he's kind of caught in the middle. And although I think he is successful, and I think Alan Jones could easily he could do a podcast. He could launch his own Substack newsletter. Uh, I don't know. He could get into Mark uh, Zuckerberg's new metaverse. He could do anything, I think, and monetize that quite easily. For News Corp, for Sky News Australia, I think he just presents more of a liability when it all comes down to it. Well, I, for one, will miss him. No, I won't. Of course <laughs> not, Maps. <laughs> um, Sammy, mm-hmm. here's a story that didn't get as much attention, which I'm very interested in. Zoe Samias from Nine Paper says that News Corp may soon face a limit on how much paper they're allowed to use. She reported that Norwegian-owned Norsky Skog... <laughs> I could not that think right. of a more Norwegian name than Norsky Skog. I know, Skog. I know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they're one of Australia's major paper suppliers. They've told some smaller publishers that they're going to increase the rates that they charge by 30 or 40%. In the next few weeks, specifically, they've also told small publishers that they may place a limit on News Corp as they are the biggest consumer of paper for their physical papers. Uh, I mean, I don't really know what to think of this. I'm not as much of a, uh, uh, you know, a um, I'm not too, uh, I guess, nostalgic about physical Mm -hmm. papers. I consume all my, my stuff online. What about you, Sammy? Are you a physical paper reader or are you digital? Look, I'll still definitely buy a physical paper from time to time. If there's an article, if there's someone I know who's been featured in an article, or if there's, you know, if very egotistically, if there's an article about me in a paper, I'll buy the I'll buy a copy of the paper because I want it. I want to keep it. I want and and there's a certain romance in my head still around holding and reading a physical newspaper. You know, when the weekend age comes out, I'll you sometimes pick that up, or the Saturday paper, or something like that. Even from time to time, I picked up the Herald Sun just to see, you know what's in there when you're sitting in the dentist's office or the doctor's office it's good to have a newspaper handy um i also am very aware that you know and i teach um university students i teach journalism classes and none of my students have touched a physical newspaper in their lives probably um so the decrease in publication numbers on physical newspapers i think more than anything we know for example that the herald sun and the Australian stuff, they don't have as many subscribers as they print, but publishing a physical newspaper is good advertising. Every physical newspaper you see lying around is a bit of advertising for that paper. So it might decrease in that kind of thing. But overall, they've already pivoted to the online space uh, for most of their marketing. The area it might affect them in is when they say, you know, when you go to an advertiser and say, hey, your ad will be published in this many printed copies of the newspaper that number will go down and that might affect their ad revenue even further. 
you're right. Physical advertising remains much more profitable, even though it is actually becoming a, a, a smaller source of revenue for them. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some more financials that came out for News Corp this week, uh, and they were good. Again, they said in their last quarter of reporting, so I think last week we spoke about the year. Now they've said the last quarter, which finished in September, they said it's their most profitable quarter yet. And here are some specifics. So revenue increased at News Corp Australia by 14%, but continued weakness in the print advertising market has brought down Australians' financials. So that remains for them, even though it's a dwindling source of their readers, still remains a significant portion of their revenue. Mm. But in terms of their digital transformation, they've gone from having 727,000 digital subscribers to 897,000. So almost 900,000 in just a year. It's clearly digital, the future. Like, I mean, everyone is kind of moving towards that. I guess, you know, am I being too uh, flippant about the idea that everyone's just going to go digital? Like, I know, of course, there are some people out there who are probably older, who are less digital savvy. But is that kind of just like, for lack of a better term, a a kind of dying generation? Like, do you think that in the future, everyone's going to be digital and there'll be no paper? Or am I being, I guess, too uh, hasty to say, oh, like, you know, it's not really a big problem? Well, I, you know, we've seen this in the publishing industry, for example, where ebooks and the rise of ebooks and the and the Amazon ebook reader and all of these things were heralded as the end of traditional publishing. But in the end, it turned out people still like physical copies of things. Now, that's still different. Obviously, the book publishing world is very different from the newspaper because you you have a book for longer and the book lost the, the shelf life of a book literally is much longer than that of a newspaper. Um from environmental purposes, I can see how daily newspapers being physical paper things will go the way of the dodo and we'll end up with maybe just the weekend editions coming out in as physical things and everything else goes online. But at the end of the day, this is still stuff that people are negotiating and navigating while being quite blind about it. You know, Zuckerberg did his metaverse entire demonstration and that thing looked horrendous. It looked like something out of the 1980s um, that was already, you know, Second Life had already lapped that kind of technology a decade and a half ago. So we're now at that stage, I think, where where the digital space and the the ubiquity of it is not where we thought it would be but its encroachment on print when it comes to newspapers has been so devastating that in the end, advertising revenue losses has been unrecoverable. Um, And that's where the newspapers are most being hurt. We know that. So who knows where this will go in terms of actual physical newspapers and advertising revenue, but it doesn't uh, speak well for News Corp. One thing I think about is how the physical newspaper really does actually make me consume news differently Mm -hmm. you know when i when i hold a physical newspaper i'm more likely to read things that i wouldn't perhaps click on because i'm like it's just there more uh i guess weight is given to how the editors and sub-editors lay out the paper and saying what isn't isn't important whereas you know i see when you look through your social media feed which is how i consume a lot of my news it's well, you know, whatever headline or, or thumbnail appeals to me that happens to happen, you know, come between everyone's tweets, you know, funny things that you tweet, Sammy, uh, other, you know, news articles, you know, uh, any anything. And, and obviously it's more competitive out there. I do think that, I, I, look, I'm, I'm unashamedly a digital native, mm-hmm. but I do think that there is kind of like, without the physical paper, not to get too, uh, I guess, you know, um, sentimental about it, we do lose some of the like, I don't know, like legitimacy, like, m- am I being too wanky to say like majesty <laughs> of the like, here is something that people produce that's information that's important and you consume it in a like slow and measured way rather than like, here's an article that I saw with a shitty headline that I'm going to retweet saying that I hate everyone. You know what this feels like? This feels like, what's the season of The Wire, which was set mostly around the newspaper publishing industry? I think it was season four. Um, and just the the di- the death of the Boston Globe and and that romance kind of dying around it. This feels like that. This feels like the moment when we're all kind of, even though it's a News Corp newspaper, we're all kind of sad to see it go. Um, and finally... News is expanding its on-demand audio arm, and it's hired three new audio journalists. I don't know if you know much about their uh, podcast portfolio already, but they've got things like 
podcast with Samantha Armitage, mm-hmm. uh, Maddie John's the NRL player. Uh, and also they do a lot with smart speakers like Alexa. Uh, and I was really surprised. I was looking through uh, the podcast charts, which are released to the industry. And places like news.com.au, places like Sky News in particular, are, are, are really dominant there. They have mm-hmm. a huge amount. I think Sky News Australia gets 250,000 listens a month, or they're, they're very, very high up there through these on-demand audio speakers, through things like Google Home, Alexa, which is Amazon as well. With these appointments, they're looking to expand their content even more. Uh, Sammy, have you listened to any of their podcasts? I haven't listened to any of their particular podcasts, but I have seen the ranking and rating stuff. And I've always been very curious as to the metrics behind that and stuff, because the numbers are insane. The numbers for most of the new score podcasts, very much like most of the Channel 10 podcasts, very much like most of these kind of mainstream media outlets and their podcast editions seem to be way higher than most of Australia's independently produced podcasts, which is largely, you know, things like yours and my podcast. But um, no, I, I, I haven't heard them. I don't think I will ever hear them, to be very honest. But the popularity of them makes sense in terms of the, why wouldn't they keep investing more into this? So the teacher's pet, which came from the Australian. Yes, was that was, very, hugely was extremely popular, popular and, and popular internationally. They've also got, uh, there's one at the moment, the name escapes me. It's an, it's an, it's to do with, um, I think dogs being stolen. That's also a great one as well. The content there, I mean, they have a whole array of content and I, I do think it's an under-examined part mm-hmm. of the continued like News Corp media empire, which is so much, you know, they go from Sky News uh, news updates, which are going out as part, I think, of, you know, pretty much like a standard news thing that you yes. like, pretty much come there. So that's how they're getting so many listens to these other like rich narrative ones from, you know, esteemed audio producers. I'm sure like the people who've been hired here. This is just another example of just they have, you know, so many fingers and so many pies that when we talk about, you know, the Oz, we talk about even news.com.au, we're actually just talking about such a tiny portion of their massive, massive audience. And, you know, if you're someone who wants to avoid them, or if, say, some, you're someone mm. who, uh, I don't know, hosts a podcast that's uh, sometimes critical about them and thinking about your career prospects, to avoid them to, or, or to, you know, uh, to not work with them uh, is, is quite difficult in Australia. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's, much, it's the Nestle problem, right? Like, if you want to boycott Nestle, you have to boycott basically half of the things in your store because they have subsidiaries and sub-subsidiaries, etc. But it makes sense for them to go into podcasting and to do it so well. True crime podcasting particularly, of course, which is why um, you know, some of their true crime podcasts have done so well. You know right now there's a dozen podcast producers elbowing each other in the face to try to do the Cleo Smith story Oh, yeah, big Um, time. (laughs) There's going to be a different bunch of different variations on that one for sure. Um, I wonder, though, for example, if you were to, you know, um, they must have offered Alan Jones, tell you what, switch to podcasting or someone like that, you know, Mm. on that level. If they tell Rita Panahi tomorrow, yes, TV is fine, but your TV numbers, let's be honest, are 20,000 viewers. Your YouTube numbers are 500,000. And as a podcast, we think you could get up to a million listeners. Just forget the TV. We'll cancel the TV contract. Just stick to these two. Will these people still do that? Or are they still tied so much to the glory and glamour of traditional media? The podcasting for them is still seen as a side gig. Yeah, interesting. I, I know that Hamish and Andy have gone from being top mm-hmm. of radio to absolutely dominating podcasting. And I, and I have to say, you know, it doesn't have the same like immediacy of radio obviously uh, and, and probably doesn't come with that same adrenaline and, and 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 the feeling of everyone consuming your content at the same time but also i imagine it would be pretty convenient as well you know like for alan jones having to wake up every morning at you know god knows what hour and do that every day compared mm-hmm. with oh you just you know go in the studio and bang out a few episodes and give them you know uh, uh schedule a few for later in the week must be very convenient i just looked up uh so in the uh, in September, this is according to Australian Podcast Ranker, top 100 podcasts ranked by monthly listeners. Hamish Nani is number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then number, uh, so then it goes, a true kind podcast, a uh, 7 a.m. is there, Carl and Jackie O, stuff you should know. Number eight is Sky News News Bulletin. And that has 250,000 uh, monthly listeners and more than 650,000 monthly 
downloads. And so that's like ahead of uh, uh, like a lot of other kind of, I think, well-known podcasts. Like, I mean, like uh, a Chat 10 Looks 3, that's the one yes. with um, uh, uh, Lee Sales and Annabelle Crabb. That's, that's uh, 21st with 140,000 monthly listeners. Ben Fordham Live, so his podcast version, that's got 100,000 monthly listeners. So they really, like, it is a surprisingly undercovered aspect of, again, their reach is that they are getting so many people, specifically through Google Home. This is Mm -hmm. the news bulletin goes through Google Home. Because of the relationship that they have with Google, they are beaming into houses all around Australia. You know what? Here's what I think we should do. We at some point we need to do a, a Alan Jones episode. Just looking at the legacy, the the the, oh, the influence of Alan Jones in uh, in and through New School. We need to do a podcast episode, Cam. We're gonna have to listen to a ton of New School podcasts and oh, yeah. decide how we feel about each and every one of them and what we like, rank what we them. Don't like, yeah, I think we're gonna have to do this. I thought you were gonna say we need to launch our own Murdoch-focused <laughs> uh, news bulletin to go out on Google Home. Uh, <laughs> I didn't even think about that. That's too much. Uh, work. I think we could we could find something to fill up the bulletins. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And now let's talk about good news corp and bad news corp. The good news corp story of the week is um, look. The, we were talking a little bit earlier about the Cleo Smith coverage. And, uh, you know, how much of media has been kind of dedicated to covering the story of this little girl who went missing for 18 days and then was found alive and well, you know, luckily and and to the police work, etc. There's been since her discovery, a kind of media, overwhelming media focus on her, her family, her day to day movements, the family's day to day movements. And there's an article on the front page of music on the AU which says detail in Cleo Smith's rescue fallout that left Australia feeling uneasy. And it's largely about the depth and and intensity of the coverage and how now people are feeling very uncomfortable about how personal it's getting and how um, absolutely uh, invasive of her privacy it seems to be getting. In Australia, do we say privacy or privacy? I, I say privacy. All right, I will go with privacy then as well. But yeah, it's it's just, it, I thought it was an interesting article to talk about how, you know, media is kind of now pushing itself to the limits when it comes to uh, just destroying this child's life in a way that is separate from her, the way her life was destroyed earlier. And then there's a media responsibility there. What's of course interesting is then the, the entire rest of the front page is also just articles about Cleo Smith. Yeah, I, that was going to be my bad news corp for the week. And, to be clear, this wasn't just them. I think this is across the media yeah, it's generally. A, I think it's a, everyone's being guilty oh, of this. Oh, God, it's insane. Like, I was looking through some social media analytics, and, and I saw, like, on, on, I think, Friday morning, like, a story from Seven News, which was, like, police officer who was on the case missed the graduation of his child. Yes. Uh, got, got <laughs> like, it was, was, like, the fourth most engaged with story. Like, there was just so much stuff out there, and... I have a critique of of crime reporting generally. Like, mm-hmm. I understand why people care about this. It's a human interest story. It's an obvious, you know, there's a victim. It's often a perpetrator. You know, there's all this stuff that makes it a perfect story. But at the end of the day, like, you know, these things can be quite um, exploitative and 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 quite voyeuristic. And th- this poor girl who has been now saved, we don't really know what has happened. I'm sure more details will mm-hmm. come out, but like, you know, her potential trauma has become a national obsession. And, and, and long after we kind of all forget about her, she will have to kind of deal with that. And, I, and I'm not sure that it's as neat a story as, well, she's saved now and everything's okay. And then there's also the kind of complicating factor that she'll also be associated with this probably for the rest of her life. Like you oh, know, anyone who who, yes. who looks up a name will will see this a really sordid, um, unfortunate, uh, you know, couple of weeks in her life. And you know, I, I hope that she is not, uh, she hasn't been affected by it too much. And and I hope that she can get over it. But even if she does, like this is going to kind of hang around with her. So, look, I, I don't want to shame people for, for being interested in this. We care about people. We care about children. That's that's a nice and normal human impulse. I just do think that we could have toned it down just a little bit. Absolutely. There's been a a paparazzi-esque treatment around this, which I think everyone in Australian media needs to kind of rethink about. You know what I will say? Okay, so this is another example, I would say, of an inadvertent good news corp, which is, I don't know if you saw Channel 7, 
had to issue an apology oh, for I accidentally did. publishing the wrong man's face and details and thus destroying that man's life for a few days as well. Um, you know, uh, because they thought he was the accuser, he was the, the, the kidnapper. Uh, congrats to News Corp for not doing that. Hell <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, good News Corp by omission. <laughs> yes, exactly. I think at this point, Channel Seven should just have it. Te- probably has a template ready for inadvertently destroying a person of color's life. But uh, oh. yeah, I, I, thought, I thought that was very interesting. That uh, you know, it's it, it, News Corp didn't do it. They were a little bit more careful and cautious than Channel Seven, which uh, is deserve a, credit for that. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, good credit for doing your job at the bare minimum. <laughs> <laughs> More than 500,000 people have heeded the call to look into Rupert Murdoch and News Corp's influence over Australia. The brains behind this, of course, was former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, a man who've seen exactly what it's like to be in the crosshairs better than anyone else. Uh, Kevin joins us now. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, happy to talk to you. Looking forward to our conversation. So, since this has just happened, I wanted to get your take on it all. Uh, we have seen what might be the end of Alan Jones's traditional uh, media career. Uh, you've certainly had your uh, ups and downs with him, including I was watching actually before a, a um, episode of Q and A in in twenty seventeen, where, where I thought there was actually quite a conciliatory moment, at least for one bit. What do you think about Sky News and News Corp deciding that? Jones is no longer useful to them anymore. Well, you referred to the earlier episode with, I think, myself and Alan Jones on Q&A. Alan Jones, at the end of the day, is a political chameleon. He's on a QA and a audience, which, of course, leans centre-left because it's broadcast on the ABC. Um, And therefore, he sought to be conciliatory in that discussion uh, with me uh, that evening. But, of course, uh, his... uh, general centre of gravity is not just centre-right, it's far-right and has been for a very long period of time. So why has the Murdoch Beast uh, through Sky uh, News decided to offload um, Alan Jones? Uh, I think because the Murdoch um, management generally are starting to get the message from mainstream Australia, they're sick and tired of this rolling diet of far-right crap. Uh, on every subject under the sun, whether it's climate change, whether it's immigration, uh, whether it's Australia's place in the world, um, whether it's uh, on economic and social policy. And uh, and they are feeling the pressure. Uh, you mentioned before uh, more than half a million Australians signing uh, an e-petition uh, to the Australian Parliament demanding a Murdoch Royal Commission. Well, that's probably just the tip of the iceberg in terms of most Australians feeling as if this man, this single American, uh, Rupert Murdoch, has just got too much power in our country. And therefore, uh, what they're sending is a message loud and clear to Murdoch, Sky News, and therefore through him to Alan Jones, that enough is enough. So whether it's uh, the dispatch of Alan Jones, whether it's uh, their attempted greenwashing at, um, by suddenly turning into um, carbon neutral, Uh, supporters by 2050. Uh, It's primarily driven by Murdoch's interest in um, cleaning up his image a bit. Uh, But the heart of the beast, of the Murdoch beast and the monopoly it controls in the Australian media hasn't changed. And it's still pursuing as effectively as it can a far-right political agenda. Do you think that that far-right political agenda now is not as influential as it was before, given the fact that you know we're seeing Alan Jones leaving, we're seeing the support that you've gotten with your campaign, uh, uh, you know, to kind of target uh, the, uh, the new scope in, in uh, you know, with the Royal Commission and everything. At this point, it, have the Australians seen the wizard behind the curtain? I think what the Murdoch Beast is now doing is seeking to be more clever than the lumbering dinosaur that they have been. Um, in the past, they've seen that their, their power is unchallenged, and and all politicians quaking uh, in their um, in their presence, and as a result, were completely overt in the way in which they sought to exercise political and media influence across this country on the big challenges Australia faces. However, having blown the whistle on these guys, and not just myself, I mean, it's a whole bunch of organisations out there which uh, have been applying similar pressure, uh, not least, of course, your own, uh, on uh, Murdoch's operations. I think they're now moving into 
less overt and more covert operations and trying to project a more nuanced image to the Australian public. And hence this greenwashing effort uh, with um, carbon neutrality by 2050. Underneath it all, though, as I said, I don't think the leopard has changed its spots. It's simply seeking to be a more clever leopard. And on the question of its influence still, bear this in mind, uh, as of today, uh, in 2021, uh, Murdoch is uh, running uh, unprecedented profits, as is evidenced by their most recent um, declared results. Secondly, uh, they still have 70% of the Australian print media and therefore set the news agenda uh, most days of the week. Uh, thirdly, um, their YouTube channel uh, is the biggest in the country. Uh, fourthly, um, Sky News now has broadcast and rebroadcast rights through both the Prime um, and Win regional television networks so that all that sky after dark stuff that we see, in fact, is now being pumped out on a daily basis right across regional Australia following the model which um, Murdoch's Fox Network used in America to go out to the highways and byways of regional America and uh, progressively radicalise those parts of the United States to the far right. So we underestimate the power of the Murdoch beast at our peril. That's why Murdoch Royal Commission is still absolutely essential for the future of our democracy. Kevin, can you explain what the influence of News Corp is like when you're in politics, when you're in government? Because, you know, sometimes I think people see... Uh, you know, there's, I think, an almost caricature of News Corp, which is that you've got Rupert Murdoch himself, you know, editing, uh, you know, people's writing and setting the agenda, when it's obviously a lot more nuanced than that. What's it actually like to experience that and how do you see it influence politics? I think uh, if you look at it uh, as um, several layers uh, of influence, um, at the um, uh, outer layer of influence, what Murdoch does because of his domination of the print media each day, and by print I also mean their, the online versions of their print mastheads, um, is seek to set the day's political and news agenda. Uh, and they do that through what they run on page one of their papers. If you were to count back over the last uh, 12 months the number of time a Murdoch paper front page lead uh, either in the Daily Telegraph, the Herald Sun, the Brisbane Courier-Mail, the Adelaide Advertiser, the Herbert Mercury, uh, or in their national um, uh, masthead, the Australian, then became one, if not the dominant, uh, electronic news story that evening on the 6 o'clock news, and then bleeding into, let's call it, digital news platforms more broadly. It would be huge. So at this outer layer, they actually set uh, often the parameters the tonality, and if they can get away with it, the content of the big news or political debate of the day. That's where the influence is most pernicious. And that's one of the core problems with the monopoly. At a second level, it's like this. Um, the uh, Murdoch beast um, is not one where Murdoch every day sits down and writes all the editorials from New York. No. But he engages editors right across the country um, uh, who know full well exactly what line is to be pursued by the papers. Uh, he does that through his um, regular meetings with editorial um, ma and management across uh, all of his um, news possessions across the world. So they don't have to be told every day what the boss thinks. They already know it. Uh, they intuit it. And so often one of the throwaway lines these editors uh, use is, well, Rupert Murdoch doesn't ring me up every morning and tell me what to write. Of course he doesn't. He doesn't need to. The only reason they've been appointed is because they already know uh, what the line is. And thirdly, in terms of the content of that line, uh, here's the evidence point. In the last 21 federal and state elections, um, uh, the uh, Murdoch beast has campaigned viciously against the Australian Labor Party and uh, also equally viciously for the Liberal and National Party, state and federal. And if you were to look at the day-to-day -day news coverage during those election campaigns, federal and state, it is overwhelming in its bias in one direction of Australian politics. Uh, and the final point of uh, impact is if you happen to be the Prime Minister of the day, and if you happen to be 
on the progressive side of politics um, like myself, then uh, once you're in office uh, and once you've uh, had to defeat the Murdoch beast in order to get yourself elected in the first place, once you're in office, they will seek to do whatever is in their power uh, to delegitimise your prime ministership uh, or your government by the way in which they will launch uh, a series of um, quite orchestrated uh, attempts at character assassination, not just in relation to myself, but in relation to people like Julia Gillard, in relation to people like um, Bill Shorten, and I'm sure we will see the same in relation to Anthony Albanese as well. It's what they do. And if you were to ask where are the penetrating character analyses of Scott Morrison um, or Tony Abbott, well, you don't see them. We, we'll get into the Royal Commission in a bit more detail in a moment, but I just want to ask a follow-up question to this. If at this point the Labour Party or the left side of politics knows that, uh, you know, being attacked by the Murdoch press, by, by News Corp, is a given, you know, it's just a part of the, the experience of being in politics now, do you think they should have developed better strategies at countering that narrative, at countering News Corp, you know, given the fact that we've got, you know, state governments still seem to be winning, labor, labor state governments still seem to be winning elections and popularity, particularly despite lockdown and despite all these things, maybe federal labor is just not very good at strategizing around News Corp. Well, bear in mind that um, federally, nationally, the degree of um, concentrated media ownership in this country is the highest of any country in the Western world, okay? And so at a state level, despite the fact that uh, Murdoch has monopoly papers uh, in, say, Brisbane and Adelaide, um, it's still a contested space at a state level in New South Wales and in Victoria. That's before you throw into the ABC and the power of commercial uh, radio as well. At a national level, though, if you aggregate the sheer campaigning horsepower of uh, the major tabloid papers in every state, plus the National Daily, uh, plus Sky News, plus the rebroadcast of it across their YouTube channel, plus the rebroadcast of it across um, the regional television networks, you're up against a very powerful monopoly. And it's not just an ordinary monopoly. As I said before, of all the members uh, of the OECD, the developed economies and democracies of the world, both in Asia and in Europe, there is no greater concentration of media ownership in this in those countries than we have with Murdoch's monopoly control, 70% of the print readership in Australia. So therefore, uh, for the Federal Labor Party, whether I'm the leader or whether anyone else is the leader, the bottom line uh, is that it's very, very difficult to navigate. And furthermore, um, Murdoch has a particular priority in ensuring that Conservatives are in office federally because it's the federal government which controls the media ownership laws in this country, not the state governments. So they'll do a campaign against Labor at the state level, but the forensic application of their political force and campaigning uh, acumen lies uh, at the federal level. Uh, by the way, in the 2013 election, Murdoch was so concerned about the need to defeat Labor in that election he dispatched uh, his leading henchman from New York, Cole Allen, editor of the New York Post, to Australia to run the campaign against um, the Labor Party. His instruction to his editors in a famous meeting in Sydney was, go hard, go rud, don't let up. And if you look at the history of that campaign, and that's exactly what they did for five weeks, and they succeeded. Of course, there are other factors alive in that election campaign as well. But uh, their voice is a very powerful voice hence why it's necessary to stand up against them. Your submission to the media diversity inquiry that came out after your campaign started was that you want to hold off on any specific recommendations other than funding the ABC until after the Royal Commission. Uh, can we draw you on whether the media diversity inquiry that came out of your push that's happening right now has brought any specifics to mind or are there any general areas or other countries that you think are doing uh, regulation around this stuff well that you'd like to see adopted in Australia? Uh, not particularly. As you rightly um, uh, argued, the single recommendation I've put out there so far is that to preserve the Australian democracy and to preserve anything vaguely approaching media balance in this country, we need a properly uh, resourced uh, national broadcast to the ABC. 
and a properly independent one as well in terms of its um, board and senior staff appointments. So what I've suggested is that for the future, we establish a baseline for our, uh, for ABC funding. Perhaps it could be a baseline established in terms of where we got to with ABC funding as of 2013. Uh, then you legislatively entrench that with a normal escalation formula to deal with um, uh, you know, cost inflation over time. And that becomes your ABC base funding for the future. And if you wish to add to that as a government or an ABC um, over time, then you can, of course, do that through further increments to the budget. But you would therefore, through legislation, protect uh, the base of ABC funding from the normal predations of the Liberal and National Party have made it almost transparently clear that they want to destroy uh, and or privatise the ABC altogether. And what they do at present is they do that by the back door by uh, undermining the ABC's budget on Budget Eve uh, every year when everyone's focus is on every other cut or every other increase in government outlays across a whole bunch of other portfolio areas. And it will be very difficult then for a future Conservative government, if we got such legislation entrenched, to then go to the Senate of the day and say, we really want to slash the ABC's budget, and because that would probably mean slashing ABC regional programming, where a lot of the uh, senators would uh, come from who are independents or even National Party senators, and they would be forced to vote on the bottom line to get rid of the ABC and their ABC services in their area. So that's one area where I think we have um, a particular proposal to put forward. But for the rest of the recommendations, given the complexity of the debate around uh, media platforms, print, electronic, digital, um, as well as uh, all the cross-media ownership laws, um, that uh, it's important that a Royal Commissioner be empowered so that she or he has the uh, opportunity uh, to look at all the models that are available across the rest of the OECD, uh, and to devise a new one for Australia to maximise our future media diversity. You don't have to have a final prescription in mind in order to diagnose that a problem exists which needs to be addressed. And the fact that we have the highest concentration of media ownership in Australia of any other developed democracy should be the automatic trigger point for a Royal Commission in the first place. What are the chances, you think, of the Royal Commission actually getting up? I think they are reasonable um, because we now have a groundswell of public support. It's not just the half million Australians who have signed a petition. It's not just the fact that uh, that petition of itself triggered a Senate inquiry um, and the fact that um, we'll have that Senate inquiry report on uh, whether, in fact, there should be a Royal Commission when it uh, finally delivers its outcome sometime later in November. Uh, it's the fact that right across Australia now you see a groundswell of support. Um, for example, we've established now Australians for Murdoch Cobalt Commission, AFMRC. Uh, we've appointed Sally Rugg uh, as the um, director. Um, we are uh, engaged in our own on online fundraising for this not-for-profit organisation to enhance our research capabilities to follow what Murdoch is doing in order to hang a lantern on the problem. And this is growing in terms of our overall strength of um, public participation. The bottom line is whether people's public's politics are centre-left or centre-right. I think in, in their heart of hearts, Australians across the board, uh, and I've got to say particularly in regional Australia, not just in metro Australia, have had a gutful of this swaggering, arrogant oaf, uh, Rupert Murdoch, the billionaire the American billionaire, having so much power in our democracy. It is a cancer in our democracy. It's a protection racket for politicians of his choosing, and it needs to be brought down. That's why we're doing what we're doing, and the public um, onto this and are supporting it. If and when we get a Murdoch Royal Commission and we get some changes that come out of it, I, I want to know, Kevin, what, what do you think that Australia could look like in five or ten years? How different do you think things would be uh, if we saw some real change happen? Early this year, I became so impassioned by this subject, I read a little book, less than 100 pages. Unusual for me to write something that short. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's called The Case for Courage. And part of it deals with 
the major national policy challenges our country faces to secure its future. Um, and part of it deals with uh, the Murdoch problem. But you ask, therefore, what could change if we had genuine media diversity in this country? It would be at the very first level to have the basis for a genuine national debate, national uh, conversation, and national resolution of our future uh, course of action as a country, as Australia, on the overwhelming policy challenges we now face, whether it is the restructuring of our economy in order to make us less reliant on hydrocarbons and uh, the mining sector, uh, in order to embrace biotechnology, information technology and renewable energy, um, whether it is, in fact, um, uh, a national strategy which seeks to turbocharge what is slowly unfolding on the renewable energies front, whether it is a national debate properly informed about how we secure our national security future with China and the United States, whether it's a national debate about how to ensure that we have decent levels of equity in Australia so that um, we don't have large groups of Australians left completely behind. And whether we have a national conversation about, for example, our future optimum population size and my views about the importance of a big Australia. At present, our ability to have a sustained national conversation about those big questions which determine whether or not we as Australia have a viable future or not, um, these are being suffocated by the current Murdoch media monopoly uh, because the way in which they set the parameters for our national conversation about these subjects at present is so ideologically driven that either the debates are never ventilated or if they are ventilated, they're ventilated in such a biased and partisan and tabloid way as to prevent a real conversation from occurring. Um, that's what must change. And if I look to an Australia where we have genuine media diversity, it would mean that the parameters and the sophistication and the depth of our national policy debates would be infinitely better than the sort of low-rent retail tabloid attack dog media uh, which uh, Murdoch and his mob uh, currently specialise in, often with the explicit objective of preventing any substantive discussion from occurring in order to protect Murdoch's monopoly interests and the profits that he makes. Remember, Murdoch only has two interests in Australia, power and money. The rest of us who are passionate about the country's future actually want to carve out a decent future for all Australians, not just Murdoch's mob. You're the only one um, out of the three of us right now who's met Rupert Murdoch. I don't think Cam and I will ever be given that chance. Uh, <laughs> what's he like? Murdoch um, is a canny business operator. Murdoch is a person who has... Uh, little interest in what I would describe as the uh, the world of the mind. If you were to try to engage uh, Murdoch on uh, discussions and debates about philosophy or political science uh, of, um, of economic um, uh, theory um, uh, or international relations, uh, that's not an area, these are not areas in which this guy is faintly interested. Where he's interested is the maximization of his personal power. And you sense that and you feel that in the conversations you have with the guy. Um, uh, furthermore, um, um, yes, he has built a significant business empire, but uh, his view of the world is, is not an expansive one. It is one restricted to Murdoch's uh, direct commercial interests, his interest in maximizing cash, and furthermore, uh, his own far-right ideological interests, which are hostile to any form of progressive government around the world under any circumstances. And you don't have to be a Rhodes Scholar to reach that conclusion with two or three conversations uh, with him. And his son, Lachlan, is just as bad. I have to ask then, just before we wrap things up, uh, are you watching Succession? Not yet, but my, um, my daughter, Jess, recommends that I do so. 
and um, and uh, it's now on my uh, it's uh, next on my uh, my television series um, uh, watch list. I've got to work my way through the Good Doctor first. I'm, I'm rather <laughs> taken by that one. <laughs> the irony, of course, being unfortunately the only way to watch it in Australia is on binge. Part of my dilemma. That's part of my dilemma. I said, what's it on? I said, binge. You mean that's owned by Murdoch. So you mean I've got to become a subscriber to watch it? Well, bugger that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for speaking with us. That's former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd there. That was former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd speaking to us about the influence of News Corp that he's seen from his very unique perspective. Uh, Thank you for listening. If you haven't already subscribed, you can find us on all places you can find podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, just about anywhere. And please, if you haven't already, join our Facebook group on uh, at Murdocracy, which is M-U-R-D-O-C-R-A-C-Y on Facebook. It's, It's a fun little place. And of course, if you like our work, please subscribe uh, and support us on patreon.com slash murdocracy. We, uh, we just set up the page. We haven't yet figured out all the extra content or any of those things that we will be doing, but we'd love to hear from you. What would you like to see more of, hear more of? Um, we'd definitely take all that into account. Your shekels will go a long way towards uh, making this podcast something that we can sustain. Yep. Thank you to our new producer, Natalie Sekolovska, who we are very excited to have on board. We'll have to get a a microphone in front of her face uh, next time, uh, just figuring out the recording details. Thank you to Kevin McLeod for theme music, the ABC for the recordings from the archive, which we use in the intro, Ruby Innes for our artwork. And of course, thank you to you, Sammy. Thanks very much, Cam. Lovely to be here. Bye. Bye.